0: Well, if you've been with us the last month or so, you know that we have been working our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is in the section of the Bible known as the Prophets. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along as I read the passage today. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you but would like to use one, if you look in the seats in front of you, underneath, you should find. A Bible there, an English Standard Version. It's what we use. And our passage today is found on 700, page 739 of that Bible. So, I see a lot of new faces this morning, so I'll just give us a little bit of a review. Daniel was about a 14-year-old boy when his life was completely upended. He lived in Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, and he lived there around 600 B.C., 600 years before the birth of Christ. And doing whatever teenagers do until one day uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon decided to invade and carry Daniel along with a handful of other uh, teenagers about uh, his status, kind of the cream of the crop of Judah, and carried them off a thousand miles away, never to see their family again, never to see their homeland again, never to see their town again. Everything that was familiar to them was gone. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to turn these young teenagers into Babylonian citizens, uh, faithful to him and enmeshed in everything Babylonian. And so he put them into a three-year re-education university, where they were submerged in everything Babylonian. And one of the things that the book of Daniel shows us is how someone like Daniel thrives and even hangs on to his faith in the God of Israel even while he's away in exile. And that's something that we as Christians need to learn as we, living in this country, are, according to Scripture, living in exile. We are away from our homeland, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Our text today is, again, Daniel chapter 2. We have looked at Daniel chapter 2 the last couple of weeks, but before we move on to 3, I wanted to give us one more look today because I think it could help us to understand Easter morning. Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 49, says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. One of the things we find out happened to Daniel was that he was made a wise man in the kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Chapter 2 opens with him having a dream. In fact, he has this dream many times over, and this dream terrified him. Nebuchadnezzar at this time was a relatively young man. He was at the height of his power. He ruled the known world. He had settled his scores with other nations. He was living in relative peace. He had all the wealth you can imagine, all the power you can imagine, and nevertheless, these dreams terrified him. How could a dream terrify someone in this position? Well if we look at the dream, the dream consisted of a huge and terrifying statue. The statue itself, Scripture says, was terrifying to look at. It had an amalgamation of different metals that made up this huge statue. The the head was of gold, the, the chest and arms were of silver, the middle and thighs were of bronze, the legs were of iron, and the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And And Nebuchadnezzar uh, discovered, after checking with all of his um, uh, kind of failed wise men, that there was one man in the nation who could give him the interpretation of the dream, and that was Daniel. And Daniel, of course, told Nebuchadnezzar he didn't have any powers in and of himself, but that the God of heaven revealed to him the dream. And according to Daniel, he he told Nebuchadnezzar that these sections each represented a different kingdom, a kingdom or, or nation that would come later uh, on, on earth in human history. And he labeled the, the head of, of this statue, uh, the head that was gold, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, that represents your kingdom. And I've often wondered if maybe the reason Nebuchadnezzar was so terrified is because the face looked like him. I mean, we don't know, but the head represented him. And as Jeff mentioned last week uh, in his excellent sermon on this statue, we don't know exactly what the other sections represent because Daniel doesn't give us the details. He doesn't label them like he does the head of gold. But that isn't really important. We Think most scholars, uh, I think most do, and and I happen to agree that that the second one uh, of of silver is Medo-Persia, the third one is Greece, and the last, down at the feet, is Rome. But the important thing isn't what these kingdoms exactly are. Because when we consider why the dream terrified him, we understand that The main reason it terrified him wasn't the way the statue looked, but because of what happened to the statue. In his dream, while Nebuchadnezzar stood looking at this massive statue, he he said a stone was cut out of rock, and that this stone was cut out not by human hands, but by some unseen power. This stone, this unassuming stone, struck the feet of the statue where the clay was, and And when it struck it, it caused the feet to shatter into pieces. And as you know, once you hit something tall down low, it happens to fall. And that's what happened to the statue. Once the the feet began to crumble, the rest of the statue followed suit. And it started an avalanche with every section of the statue beginning to crumble, extending all the way to the head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw his his own kingdom collapse, all of it, the whole statue, representing the greatest and most powerful nations in the history of the world, reduced to dust. In fact, Scripture says that it was all like chaff of the summer threshing floors, which the wind carries away so that not a trace of them can be found. Well, what of the stone? I mean, surely if a stone hits the feet of the statue and the whole statue is, uh, collapses into a huge heap of dust that all of it is carried away, certainly that would include the stone, you would think. I mean, after all, if, if iron and and, and, and and, and this kind of precious metal is reduced to dust. No doubt this unassuming stone would, would have been smashed to dust as well, but no, that's not what he sees. And in fact, while the statue is toppling, the stone essentially goes in the other direction. The stone that smashed the statue grows, it grows until it becomes a great mountain and fills the entire earth. And of course, once that happens, the statue, even when it was a statue, is completely eclipsed. How much more so when it's dust. I remember the first time I ever went to New York City and stood at the base of the Empire State Building and looked straight up. And it was was an awesome sight. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have probably done that as well. I didn't have a chance to stand uh, at the base of the World Trade Center. I hear, I hear that people who did that found them even more imposing because uh, they were taller and there were two of them. Uh, but standing at the base of the Empire State Building was, uh, was quite a sight there in New York. Of course, the Empire State Building is about 1,200 feet. But this past summer, my family and I had the chance to go and visit uh, out west and we went to some of the national parks And once we went to the Grand Teton, which is 13,000 feet tall, uh, if you were to uproot the the Empire State Building with some crane and drop it next to the Grand Teton, of course now it looks like nothing. And that's essentially what happens to the statue. The statue is dwarfed. This mountain doesn't simply become a 13,000 foot high mountain, but it embraces the entire earth, a mountain that dwarfs any kingdom. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar is terrified, because if the dream says anything to him, then it tells him and it tells us this morning that the kingdoms that we build for ourselves, no matter how grand, are temporary, and they were all destined to be turned into dust. Just think, if you want to try and compare yourself to other people, just think how amazingly rich and powerful Nebuchadnezzar was at the time of this dream. Far more wealth, far more power than any one of us in this room has, probably than all of us in this room have combined. Daniel tells him, he says, look, Nebuchadnezzar, the the head of gold represents you. You are the king of kings, earthly speaking. you, You have all power and all might and all glory. You rule over all. Daniel is... Being honest with him. Right now, you are the top of the heap, Nebuchadnezzar. No one can touch you. It's difficult to comprehend a human being being more rich and more powerful than he was at that time. But notice what Daniel says to him. To him, the, the king of kings with all power and all might and all glory, he says, Look, Nebuchadnezzar, see, Here's what the dream says, another kingdom which is inferior to you is going to arise after you, and then another one of bronze, and, and they're going to rule over the earth. He, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, another kingdom is going to rise that is inferior to you, and it will rule. Now, how does a, an inferior kingdom rule over a superior kingdom? How can that happen? Well, it happens… Because, Daniel says, it takes place after you've gone. Speaking to, at that time, the most powerful man in the world, Daniel reminds him, you will one day be dust. In that one statement, Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar the thing which we all must be reminded and which no one ever wants to be reminded of, the one universal truth That is true for everyone in this room, regardless of where we began, regardless of what we have now, the one undeniable truth is that one day everyone in this room is going to end up dust in the ground. In the end, we all die. Death comes to us all, rich or poor, powerful or weak. And the saying that you've heard is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Really? Is that what we want to cling to? How many toys did Nebuchadnezzar have? Nebuchadnezzar owned one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that he designed. It was called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I'm sure that's a far greater toy than any one of us could ever imagine owning. What good did it do him? The Hanging Gardens are gone. What did it matter to Nebuchadnezzar, any of what he owned or had designed when death came calling? Percy Shelley's famous poem, Ozymandias, it says this, I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Shelley wrote that poem not about Nebuchadnezzar, although he could have. He wrote it actually about Pharaoh Ramses II, who reigned, if you're interested, From 1279 to 1213 B.C., he was, by the time Nebuchadnezzar had arrived, he was already dust and gone. One of the things that you notice about this statue is that each kingdom is represented by a substance that is less valuable than the one before. This means that as history advances, even though we might encounter technological advancements and and medical advancements, which is true. Ultimately, all things tend toward decay and destruction. Ecclesiastes, one of the most honest books ever written in the history of the world, says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. That was written by one of the greatest kings who ever lived, who had more money than any of us could comprehend. The apostle James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Some of you in this room know what I'm talking about when I say that we are all on a physical downward spiral. Yesterday, we, uh, my family and I had a, like a game day. We have these every once in a while where we kind of put down on a whiteboard more games that we could ever play in, in a day, and then we have competitions. Some are uh, board games, some are video games, some are outdoor games. And, and yesterday, what we really, uh, really focused on were the outdoor games because it was a nice day. So for the first time in my life, I learned how to play Foursquare. It was fun. I didn't win, but it was, it was nice. <laughs> we also played around the world, which I demolished everyone in, <laughs> which was good. Uh, but after we played around the world, my son Andrew kept uh, grabbing the rim because he plays volleyball and so he likes to work on his vertical leap. And I stood there and looked at this rim. And I can remember vividly not that long ago in the great span of history, when I could dunk with relative ease. Now, I couldn't ever palm the ball, so I would sometimes lose control of it, but I could get up high enough to dunk almost whenever I wanted. And I stood there yesterday and looked up at the hoop and thought, how can I remember that so vividly? It wasn't that long ago Again, in the grand scheme of history, and yet now to even contemplate trying to touch the rim, I'm afraid to because I might blow my knee out upon landing. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to all of you? Well, the Bible tells us why this inevitable downward slide into death and decay It says in Genesis 3 to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. You see, since the fall into sin, things have tended toward decay. And all things end in death and destruction. All human beings, no matter how great their wealth or accomplishments, end up in the grave. Let me see a show of hands. How many here know who Henry Frick is? I see a half hand. <laughs> How many of you, by a show of hands, know who Silbonicus is? Henry Frick was the second richest man in the world in 1918, a steel tycoon. Not one of us knows him. Less know Silbonicus, emperor of Rome for a time. All of which we have left of his reign are two coins. We could keep going for hours and hours listing the people and the kingdoms that time forgot, all of whom have been blown to the wind. How does it make you feel? How does it make you feel this morning on, on Easter morning of all days when we should be happy? How does it make you feel that, that in the end your life is but a mist? That in the end, like Nebuchadnezzar, all of your accomplishments will one day be forgotten and wiped clean from human history. Does it make you long for something that will never fail? Does it make you long this morning for someone who can say, I conquered death? Does it make you long for a kingdom that will last forever? If it doesn't, I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) Because I'm not talking about a fairy tale. Death is reality. But I don't want to leave you with bad news this morning. I want to leave you with good news. Because Daniel didn't only speak about fallen and crumbling kingdoms. He spoke of another. He spoke of another kingdom set up by God himself. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Notice what Daniel says about this other kingdom. After talking about the greatest of human kingdoms – being smashed to nothing, he says, this kingdom will never be destroyed. This particular kingdom will not be left to another people. And this particular kingdom will stand forever. Which means that this kingdom, whatever this kingdom is, is the one kingdom and the only one that has the power to defeat sin and death. It means that The people that are in this kingdom, whoever they are, will always be in possession of it. You know, I don't know what your plans are today. Obviously, at some level you plan to be here. I don't know what you have planned after this. Maybe you have a luncheon. We're going to a lunch at a a relative's house. Maybe you'd like to take a nap. I don't know, maybe you'd like to watch the the final round of the Masters. Maybe you'd like to gorge yourself with Cadbury cream eggs. Whatever it is that you're planning today, I hope that you make your number one plan today to find out about this everlasting kingdom. Because anything else that you are planning today, if you don't consider that, is really meaningless I mean, it's nice for a while, but you have death staring you in the face at the end of it all. But the good news, friends, is that there is such a kingdom, and it was set up exactly as Daniel said. Daniel said that that in the days of those kings, the days of these ancient kings, perhaps he was even more specifically talking about the days of the king's of the last kingdom, Rome. He said that a stone will be cut from a mountain by no human hand, by, by some unseen and ultimate power, a stone will be cut. See, it was the, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, the Nebuchadnezzar of his day, who reigned over the known world who had all power and all authority and all riches in his hands. It was during his reign that, you see, an obscure teenage girl, a virgin named Mary, from an equally obscure town called Nazareth, a a nobody in a no-name town that Caesar Augustus wouldn't give any second thought to. That this virgin was visited by an angel. And this angel said to her the best news up till that point that this world has ever heard. The angel said to her, behold, Mary, you are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you're going to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Friends, Jesus is the stone that was carved out of the mountain. And at that time, compared to the great Roman Empire, compared to Caesar Augustus, Jesus looked like nothing. Inconsequential. For the first 30 years of his life, he lived in obscurity. No one knew who he was. Nobody cared who he was except for his closest friends and family. And then he had a Short three year stint as a rabbi, really never going outside of his own local area. And at the end of three years, at 33 years old, he died by being crucified like a common criminal. A man who lived in obscurity for 33 years and died on a cross. And when he died, Tiberius Caesar reigned supreme. At the time of his death, Jesus seemed like such a little stone compared to the giant statue of Rome. And I think Jesus would have remained a nobody except for what happened three days later. What happened, friends, was the most Earth-shattering, monumental, epoch-changing event in all of human history. What happened three days after Jesus was crucified was the turning of the tide. It was the reverse of what happened in Eden. It was the defeat of sin and death. And it was the beginning of the growth of that little stone into a mountain that today covers the entire earth. His followers didn't know that it was going to happen. Not even his mother knew that it was going to happen. The women saw him die. The women saw him buried in the tomb. They watched what tomb he was buried in, and they saw that it was sealed with a stone. And when they went back to that tomb on Sunday morning, they went there with a purpose, and it wasn't to witness a resurrection. They went there to anoint a dead body. And as we heard in our Scripture reading, as they walked there, they wondered, who would remove the stone? They certainly weren't able to do it. They were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Now let me ask you a question. What if the man dressed in white that morning had given them this message? Welcome. I have rolled the stone away for you so that you can complete your mission today, ladies. Come in and see. You'll see that you've come to the right place. You, you'll see that that here he is, laying exactly where he was laid three days ago. Go ahead. Anoint him. Place on him your spices. I'll take care of the stone when you leave, and when you leave, please go share his message of love with the world. Please go go tell his disciples what he taught them while he was alive. I'm sure that will make the world a better place. One thing's for certain. If that was the message that they were given that day, then Jesus today would be a nobody like Henry Frick or Silvanicus. If that was the message, then sin and death are still reigning and there is no hope. Thank God that was not the good news they received that morning. You see, if the best news the world had ever gotten until that morning was, Mary, you're going to have a son, then it's only been eclipsed if it's been eclipsed by the news that those women received that morning. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is not here. He is not here because he has risen just as he said he would. Friends, that is the good news. That and only that. What else is there? You see, some say that there isn't a resurrection, that that it's impossible, that that miracles don't happen. But, But you see, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But... In fact, he says, Christ has been raised. And if anyone knew of the power of the resurrected Christ, it was Paul. Because it was him, it was the resurrected Christ, and only the resurrected Christ that changed his heart. And he tells us that. In in fact, Christ has been raised... He has been raised the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Do You understand, on the day that he was raised, Christ was raised in a glorified body never to die again. Friends, the stone was rolled away not to let Christ out, but to let the women in. No stone could have held him in, moved or not. Jesus was raised imperishable, and from that day until now, he has been building his kingdom. His kingdom has been inaugurated, and one day when he returns, it will be consummated. See, we're all finite All of our kingdoms are finite. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Caesar, where are they now? The most powerful people in the history of the world are nothing. And meanwhile, an obscure man from Nazareth who died a criminal's death on the cross has built the greatest kingdom this world has ever seen. No earthly ruler rules over as many people as the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, today, in this world, one slice of time, there are now estimated to be over 100 million Christians in China alone. How many millions of people does Jesus have in his kingdom? Friends, it has covered the entire earth just as Daniel said. Ask yourself, how does that happen? How on earth does the church of Jesus Christ get to be as large as it is now unless he has been raised? It's impossible. And notice what happens at the end of our passage. King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face pays homage to Daniel and commands that offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answers and says to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. And the king gives Daniel high honors and many great gifts and makes him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. In that image there, we see that Daniel is a type of Christ, that Daniel goes from no one to at the right hand of the most powerful man on earth. But we see something else interesting. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, what about my friends? Daniel makes a request of the king and he appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon as well. You see, in Daniel's train come his, that are connected to him. That is exactly what Paul says the resurrection is. The resurrection is one great event that happens in two stages. Christ first And at the end of the age, all those who follow in his train. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and only then will come to pass the saying that is written, O oh, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ see, friends, the the good news this morning is not what our world tries to tell you it is. He who dies with the most toys wins, or just try to be kind to people while you live, or hey, he lived to a hundred, he died a ripe old age, he had a good life. That's not hope. The good news this morning is this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. Friends, the stone has become a mountain. But only because on that Easter morning, the stone that was there had been rolled away. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this morning. We are so thankful again for your reminder. Lord, You give us hope for the future. You tell us what has happened, and you tell us how you did it, and you tell us that he's coming back again. And Father, this morning, we put our hope in Christ alone. And Father, we pray that you would carry us to that day when we will see him face to face. It's in his name we pray, amen.